Uh, If you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're talking about imitation. Uh, You have all heard that expression made famous by, I think his name was Charles Colton, that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You've all heard that, right? Um, However, though, the person that's being imitated is usually um, annoyed by the fact that they're being imitated, and the person doing the imitating usually denies that they're actually imitating someone. Now, if you've ever been in a sibling group, younger, older siblings, you kind of know how this works, right? Uh, And the reason there's a tension exists is, on the one hand, people, we like to be unique. I like to be my own person, so don't copy me. On the other hand, we like to be in community. There's nothing worse than feeling like you don't belong. So if nobody ever copied you at least a little bit, you begin to feel like maybe I'm not that important and I don't actually belong. So there's this odd tension that we feel with with imitation in our culture. On the one hand, we don't want it to happen, but on the other hand, we feel that that actually happens. Now, believe it or not, that this whole dynamic of imitation that we feel that I've been talking about is actually revealing of a more fundamental theological truth. And, 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 And as you know me, I believe everything in life is a reminder of a more fundamental theological truth. And that is this that human beings are the kind of beings that we're made to imitate. Let me say that again. Human beings are the kinds of beings that we're made to imitate. If you're familiar with your Bibles, the very first couple of uh, chapters of Genesis, God made man and women to image him, to reflect him, to imitate, to reflect his character and his glory. And since God is one, yet at the same time he's in community and diversity because he is also three, this concept of imitation touches on this dual tension we have to be unique, but at the same time to be the same, right? That's what's going on. And we feel this tension. I want to be unique, but I also want to be same. Well, that expression, that imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, actually didn't start in kind of psychological circles or business issues, like businesses copy one another. Charles Colton actually copied that expression out of the context of religious worship, believe it or not. Specifically, the worship of the pantheon of Roman gods. He is modifying the quote by the emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, in the second century AD when he said this, you should consider that imitation is the most acceptable part of worship, and that the gods had much rather mankind should resemble than flatter them. So that was the original quote. Charles Colton changed that to simply say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, what we have here in Ephesians chapter 5, written nearly 100 years before the emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, said that, is Paul the apostle making this point that imitation actually is an act of worship. But what we choose to imitate will determine if it's the kind of worship that we actually want to engage in. And so how we see Paul laying out this argument in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, we see in verses 1 to 2, how to imitate God, verses 3 to 6, how not to imitate the world, and then verses 7 through 14, how the two relate. So how to imitate God how not to imitate the world, and then finally, how the two relate. So let's look at them one at a time, how to imitate God. 
So we see there in verses 1 and 2 that Paul says to be imitators as beloved children. Now, just as everything in the book of Ephesians, I remember talking to you that Ephesians breaks down into two major sections, chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6. And just as everything of the first section of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, hanged on the balance of the teaching that Paul says that in Christ, God has elected a people to himself whom he has blessed with every spiritual blessings in Christ and everything he wrote after that throughout 1, 2, and 3 hinged on that was an anchor truth. And likewise, what Paul is, everything he's saying in chapters 4, 5, and 6 hangs on what Paul wrote in the very first section or the first part of the second section. And that was in chapter 4, verse 1 when Paul wrote this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God. Now imagine, you could actually almost stitch those two verses right together, couldn't you? Listen as I read chapter 4, verse 1, and then chapter 5, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore be imitators of God. So as a matter of fact, what he's saying in chapter 4, verse 1, of what you ought to be doing, he's not really telling us specifically in chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has given to you. And then Paul follows up that phrase with a key qualifier. Notice it says here, as beloved children. So, so important. So Paul says, therefore, Therefore, in light of all that has come before that we've been studying in chapter 4, the new life you have in Christ, be imitators of God, but how do we do that? He says, as beloved children. As like a child naturally acts like their mother or father, we naturally act like our heavenly father. A child will always act like mom and dad simply by virtue of the fact of being around mom and dad and being exposed to them. Imitation so much is not something that is taught as much as it is caught. And sometimes when it works positively, we love that. And sometimes when it doesn't work as positively, we're not that in love with that. And sometimes it's quite frankly just embarrassing the way our kids can reveal things about us unintentionally. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, Lori was telling me about our nephew in Berkeley who was revealing to his classmates uh, and school teachers about his father's, my brother-in-law's, police record. And so this got around, and so it got back to my brother-in-law, and he couldn't figure out, I, I don't have a police record. What could my son be thinking to tell all his classmates and his teacher that I've got a police record? And as he was talking to his son, he, he realized behind his son was this whole boxes and boxes of vinyl records that he collects, and he remembered that, oh, I do have some police records. It was the band, the police. That's the police record he was telling everybody that I have. Kids will imitate and say things about just being in the presence of their parents. And Paul is saying we imitate God as beloved children. Imitation always works best in the context of relationship. Because that's where it's organic and that's where it's natural. You recall with me Jesus saying to his disciples in John chapter 15, Abide in me... As my words abide in you, and you will bear fruit. Right? 
He, he, he didn't say work it up, but just abide as a, a vine naturally produces fruit. So do our lives naturally produce fruit as we're abiding with him. You know what happens when we don't imitate from relationship first, but simple behaviors. In other words, if we are imitating the Father, but not in the context of relationship as beloved children, but we're imitating the Father just kind of on behavior, what happens is we miss the heart of those behaviors and begin to see the the, the actions, behaviors, as a litmus test of actual imitation. And when in reality, it's not actually imitating the Father, it turns out to be kind of a a Christianized um, behaviorism. So we can replace relationship with with just uh, knowing sets of rules. We can replace this wonderful relationship with just understanding theology. We can replace relationship with getting involved in social justice. We replace relationship with just good personal disciplines. We replace relationship with a particular set of uh, living practices. Now, don't get me wrong. Every one of those are good. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of them. But did you notice you can do any of those and not have any relationship with God? As a matter of fact, if I were to read that list again, you could probably point to non-Christians that you know who actually have done these very things. You see, when we miss the heart of imitation as being relational and we just look at it as behavioral, we begin to look at those actions as the test of whether or not you are in relationship with God. And you can do them without any relationship. Now, the biggest drawback to that kind of imitation in terms of our life as a church is that if we try to imitate God, thinking that imitation is first a matter of behavior and not of relationship as beloved children, we're tempted to take these good and admirable aspects of a transformed life and elevate them to be ultimate aspects of Christian maturity that we then kind of determine who's mature and who's not based on whether or not they adhere to our particular preference. So let me illustrate that. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a a family that was visiting with us, and they had just moved in the South Orange County, very new to the area. They had moved from some other part of Southern California. And the first thing that they had said to me, I couldn't believe it, the first thing that they said was, wow, there's so much materialism in South Orange County. It'll be interesting to see how you deal with that in this area. So first of all, I thought, you're giving me way too much credit because I'm not going to be able to deal with those things. But I also thought, I guess the way we're going to have to deal with that is the same way we deal with a sense of self-righteousness that you seem to have about the materialism here. <laughs> now, I didn't, maybe I did say that because they didn't come back. But, but the, the, the point is this. Here's the point. This, these people rightly recognize an area that very much distracts people from God, right? Materialism is a sin. When we're looking for our life from stuff, That is a sin. That's become what the Bible calls idolatry. But these people so elevated a minimalist lifestyle to the point that they couldn't see that they were worshiping a different approach to material material goods. So the materialist says, I've got all this stuff. I'm good. The minimalist says, I don't have any of this stuff. I'm good. The point is they're both missing the point. It's not about stuff. But do you see how they misunderstood it because they saw, hey, living simply so that we can give our money away for the gospel, that's a good thing. But when they do that apart from relationship, they made that the litmus test of what it is to be a mature Christian and looked at anybody who didn't appear to meet the test, they looked down on them. 
And that is the last thing God wants us to do. So when Paul says, imitate God, it's not as moralists, it's not as activists, it's not as theologians, it's not as disciplinarians, but he says as beloved children who, notice his next phrase, walk in love. So we want to say, well, what does that look like? And Paul tells us, walk in love, and Paul says, as Christ's love and as Christ's gave. See that in verse 2? Just as the world, I think this is so interesting the way Paul writes, it just as the world, represented by the Gentile lifestyle, gave themselves up to greed and impurity, chapter 4, verse 19, Paul writes right here, Christ gave himself up to sacrifice and death as a supreme demonstration of his love. So what Paul is saying is that Christ is the model and ground for such a life of love. Christ's love so signally demonstrated in the cross. Paul is saying, ultimately then, to imitate God is to imitate Christ. And costly, sacrificial love is to characterize the believer relationships with one another. You remember, if you've been here in our study in Ephesians, in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul was praying that the Ephesians would know the love of God. He wasn't praying that they would know that how much God loved them. Do you remember this? Paul was praying that they would know the very love that Christ had while he was on earth. They would be able to love in that same way. So as he prayed for them in chapter 3, verse 19, here he's commanding them to live in light of that reality. But because Paul knows that this is not natural to the human inclination, it's not natural to me, it's not natural to any one of us, He wants to remind again not to imitate the world that's all the way around them. So he says, okay, this is how you imitate God in this relationship as children to a father or mother. Now how not to imitate this world that's all the way around you, verses 3 through 6. And notice in verse 3, Paul turns from self-sacrifice to its very opposite in talking about sexual immorality and covetousness. He goes from the self-sacrifice of Christ to the self-indulgence of the flesh. From genuine love that gives to a a perverted sense of lust that only takes. And the contrast couldn't be clearer. From the sacrificial love and sacrificial actions to total selfishness in in verses 3 through 5. People who live in the exact opposite manner. That's why Paul says in verse 5 that these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ because that's not the kingdom they want. Where you read verses 3 and 4, the kingdom they want is the kingdom of me. So, so what is sexual immorality other than, you know, I want your body for my pleasure? What is covetousness other than, I want your stuff for my pleasure? It's all about me. Paul says, in contrast, this is not the way the redeemed community lives. It's not all about me. It's all about God. It's all about us. Remember, as we learned from Martin Luther, he gave us the most working definition of sin. Martin Luther said, sin is curvatus in se, curved in on itself, and only thinking of what is good for itself. And so Paul says the antidote to this curved in and deforming lifestyle that sin breeds, you look at it in the end of verse 4, is thanksgiving. Now, that that may seem a little counterintuitive, but listen to what John Stott says about this. This is what John Stott says. This is the point Paul is making. Whereas sexual impurity and covetousness 
both express a self-centered acquisition, thanksgiving is the exact opposite. And so the antidote required, it is the recognition of God's generosity. You see, thanksgiving has this outward and often upward element to it, whereas selfishness and sin pulls us inward and downward. So as we are celebrating the church today, and there is much that we have to celebrate as we've been experiencing this morning, let me just put it in that brief context. The question we have to ask is, is there sacrificial love in my life? And is it showing in sacrificial actions the people I'm around? Right, those are two separate questions. Is there sacrificial love, and does it show in sacrificial actions? I think Kyle prayed um, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, right? He said, where it says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life away for many. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He said, though Christ was equal with God, he did not consider that something to be grasped or maintained, but gave that aside and came to earth in the form of a man. Paul wrote, wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He said that, that Christ, being rich, became poor, that through his poverty, we might become rich. You see, if anyone could say, look, look, I don't need to do this, it would have been the Son of Man, but he came not to be served, he came to serve. He was wealthy beyond imagination, and says, I'm putting that aside to become poor, so that through my poverty, we all could be made rich. You see, Paul says, Christ in the cross is the extreme example, the supreme example of sacrificial love showing in sacrificial actions. I mean, if, if you just want to obliterate, you say, well, how do, I, how do I become that way? Just look at the cross. And, and, and your whole sense of living for me and my life and my interests will be decimated. Because at the cross, you see the supreme picture of love and action combined. So when we serve in a church, when we serve in a church, let me just talk about some benefits now, you might be used to, or you may think at churches, you expect the pastor to ask people to get involved because we have needs, and we do. But please know this, that when I ask you to serve, it's not because we have needs. When I ask you to serve, it's because you benefit from it. I am convinced. Number one, God will meet the needs. God will always meet the needs. So when I ask you to serve, when we are asked to serve, please know it's not because we just need warm bodies to fill positions. That's not it at all. We want you to be blessed. Let me give you just three quick reasons that's true. Number one, when you serve, when you get involved in the life of a community, you flourish. You were designed to flourish. And when you serve, you flourish. Remember, your joy in a church is in direct proportion to the exercise of the gifts God has given you. Remember that. Your joy, whether it's in this church or any church, will be in direct proportion to the exercise of the gifts God has so wired you to do. So when you serve in those capacities, you are the one that flourishes. The second reason that you benefit from serving is that you know that you are making an investment in a God who is efficient and effective, and the return on that investment will be a hundredfold of whatever you could have given. And they say, well, that's, that's preaching the self-interest. That's okay. The Bible actually talks about that. Lay up treasures in heaven. When you are serving, 
God will take whatever little you give, and however badly you give it, and multiply it a hundredfold to bless you in return. And the thing is this, you don't have to do it great, you don't have to be perfect at it, you just give it up and God uses it. I remember one time I had a chance to share the gospel with this one woman at the University of Hawaii. I was in her dorm room. We were in this, I won't get into the details. I just, it was an opportunity. I thought, I'm going to take it, share the gospel with this young lady. So this is midnight here. About 30 minutes into it, her roommate came in, Becky. And she was like tired, exhausted, didn't want to hear about it. But you know, in college environments, people sleep even though other people in their dorm room. So Becky went to sleep. But for 90 minutes more, I got to share the gospel with Joy. Yeah, I had Joy, but her name was Joy too. So... But after that two hours, Joy looked at me, and she was just, I think she was actually even more hardened and turned off to the gospel of Christ. So I left deflated. I was very discouraged. The next morning in the cafeteria, here comes Becky with a smile from ear to ear, and she's bawling as she starts to speak to me. You see, Becky was a backslidden believer. And she said, you were sharing the gospel with your, my roommate, but you had no idea that you were sharing the gospel with me. And she had at that moment, because of God's sovereign grace, not because I did a great job, because I obviously hardened one, but God used it to harden one, but soften the other, and she turned her life around and gave it back to Christ. My point is simply this. I fumbled the ball. I did a bad job. God picked it up and made it for his glory. And when you give your gifts that way, it's not about the quality. It's not about all those other things. It's saying, God, this is the little I have, like the boy with the five fish and the two loaves. Would you do something with it? Finally, when you serve in a church, you get to meet the cream of the crop of the people in that church, and you get blessed by them, don't you? When you jump in, you're jumping in with the best of the best who are jumping in too, rolling up their sleeves, getting involved. You know, the great irony I've always felt about churches and, and, and the people that complain about churches, they'll say something along the lines of, well, they don't care about me, they just did, I'm not that important, but here's the, the reality. They're usually those are the people on the peripheral edges. And of course, it feels like nobody cares for you because guess who you're standing with? All the other people on the peripheral edges. Guess where all the people who roll up their sleeves and dive in are? They're on the inside. So duh, nobody cares for you because you're with the people on the outside who don't care about getting on the inside. Does that make sense? So serve because you're going to be blessed to meet the most loving people in that community. Yeah, you're going to have needs, but you know what? As you roll up your sleeves and you jump in, those needs get met all the time. So we want you to serve for that blessing. Now serve whether it's in your church, serve in your community, serve in your culture. Here's the point. Serve in a way that it's sacrificial and that it commends people to the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. Serving people in a way that brings praise to God. Boy, i, I got to land this thing. we got two minutes, and I haven't even gotten into point three. I always do this, don't I? Let's wrap this up. So we imitate God as beloved children. Relationships, uh, the relationship is the key. We don't imitate the world, and one of the antidotes Paul gets at is thanksgiving because it's by definition is outward focus, not inward pulling like sin does. But recognizing that we live in a world where both exist, Paul addresses the issue, how do the two relate? How does this imitating of God and not imitating the world relate? And that's what 7 to 14 is about. Now look at uh, let's verse 7. Therefore, do not associate with them, speaking of the word, the world. Now don't misunderstand verse 7. Paul is not advocating um, total separationism. 
he, he doesn't want us to be like the, the, uh, the, the Dead Sea community, the Qumrans, the Essenes, who, who left culture and left society and kind of lived in, literally lived in caves. Uh, he's not advocating to be even like the Jews of the day, where their food, dietary laws, and Sabbath observance kept them partially separated from the community. Remember, in Christ, everything came down. What Paul is advocating is to be in the world, but not to be of the world. The term there in verse 7, to be partners, is talking about intimates, companionship, one with another. So what Paul is arguing is not separation, is, is arguing not to be unified. He doesn't want you unified, but he doesn't want you separated either. In other words, we tend to separate ourselves from the world, but then how do we have an influence in the world? So Paul is saying, don't partner with them. He's just saying, don't be united to them with them in this intimate companion way. But he wants us in the world. So look at verse 8. I'm going to unpack this as we go. Verse 8, he's saying, you were darkness, now you are light. Again, he didn't, he's not saying you practice deeds of darkness, now practice deeds of light. He's getting to the point he's been making all throughout Ephesians. What you are produces what you do. And because you were darkness, you produce deeds of darkness. Now you are light, and you will produce deeds of light. And here's that thing with relationship. Relationship is so much more fluid. It's not a matter of of set protocols and policies and procedures. This is how you're all supposed to look when you're doing it. It's not a legalistic or strict or rigid adherence to rules. That's not what it's about. It takes discernment and wisdom, which is why in verse 10, he says to them, discerning and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because as you are in the world trying to yield an influence trying to be light as beloved children, imitating your heavenly Father. All the situations and variables are too complex to distill into sets of rules, do's and don'ts. The one thing he's saying is, look, just don't be unified with them, but be amongst them. And try to discern what the will of the Lord is. There's wide latitude, wide latitude in living your life in the world. Christianity demands, let me say it this way, the kind of love that cannot be demanded. Let me say that again. Christianity demands the kind of love that cannot be demanded. Now, I don't want to sound mystical like one-hand clapping kind of thing. What I I mean to say about that is, um, men, you've heard this when your girlfriend or your wives said something similar to this. Um, Back then, it sounded completely irrational, but now it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's this relational idea. They would say something like this. I don't want to have to tell you how to show your love for me. You should just know. Or something like, if I have to tell you, then you'll never know. Okay, so you know how frustrating those kinds of phrases could be, but what really makes a lot of sense is because what they're trying to communicate is that if your heart is truly toward them, then your actions will reflect that. Conversely, if your heart isn't truly towards them, no amount of information, no amount of instructions is going to change the situation, right? Because then you're just following rules. You're not loving them the way you need to love them. Does that make sense? And so in the same way, Christianity demands the kind of love that can't be demanded from you. It's got to flow from who you are. It's like anything else. If you love something, your life conforms to that object almost intuitively because your mind, your thoughts are filled with that object. Your affections are taken 
by that object, and your life choices are made with that object in view. You see, this is why it's got to be relationship and not set rules. A relationship like a child to their mother or father. And like our father, to pursue the world to come out from the darkness. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, these warnings are there not because the expectation is that God's children will remove themselves from the world. They're there, Paul's saying this in verse 7 and verse 11, because he's hoping that God's children are in the world trying to be an influence in the world. He's hoping that God's children will be like God who goes after people in the darkness, who is in the world but not of the world. And see, when Paul is saying in verse 11 to expose them, it's not expose in the sense of I'm going to rat you out kind of thing. That's not it at all. What Paul is saying is is you expose them to the light of the gospel. I think verse 13 validates that interpretation. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes light. It becomes visible. So he's warning them to, to not become partners with them. He's warning them not to be conformed to them, not because he wants them separate, but because he realizes in order to reach the world, you have to be in there. In order to expose deeds of darkness, you have to be rolling up your sleeves and pulling it out into the light. But you pull out into the light of the gospel, just as Jesus did, who came into the darkness of this world, yet was not like this world. Paul says he expects his children to be in the world, calling it out from the darkness into his light. And if this seems impossible, it wasn't, because Jesus already did that very thing. You see, what Paul, what the Bible's talking about for the church, isn't to be a retreat from the wickedness of the world and to be kind of like a holy huddle. That's not what it is at all. It's not a retreat. It's a rescue mission to bring out a holy community called the church. You know, I've always said, let me close it with this. I've always said, we've got to come up with a better, better thing to call it than retreats, right? What's a retreat? You're getting away. Every time I read my New Testament, it's a move towards. So one of these days, we're going to have to come up with a word. Instead of calling it church retreats, call it like a, well, maybe church rescue wouldn't be it either. But the idea being, Paul is saying, is the church is a community, a new community, breaking into this world with the gospel of light. Just as Christ broke into this world with the gospel of light, with sacrificial love and sacrificial actions, signally seen in the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us, the charge that you've given to us to walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself. Father, we can't do that apart from having a relationship with you And so we thank you that even in Christ, we have that as well. Would you continue to help us to have this relationship with you, that as the vine produces fruit, we would produce fruit for your kingdom. And we thank you for it in the name of Christ. Amen.